Hi, I'm Emily from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a student pharmacist at the University of Iowa's College of Pharmacy. But today I'm in New York City attending the American College of Clinical Pharmacy's annual meeting. You're listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. episode, we talk with Dr. Cheyenne Newsom and Dr. Jessica Conklin, passionate advocates who promoted the role of pharmacists in the care of transgender persons, about the need for patient and provider education, and about the benefits and risk of gender-affirming treatment. Welcome to Pharmacy Forward Podcast. My name is Ha Fan from the University of Mississippi, and joining me today is my co-host, Elizabeth Yet. She's a current PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy resident here at the school. Hello and welcome, everyone. Our topic today is gender identity, the role of medications, and how pharmacists can help prescribers and transgender patients use medications most effectively. Back in 2016, a survey done by the Williams Institute estimated over a million people here in the U.S. identified themselves as transgender. This is nearly double the rate from that same survey that was taken five years earlier. As the visibility and social acceptance continues to increase for transgender individuals, it is imperative that we as healthcare professionals are able to grow and adapt in the way that we approach our care for these patients. Today, we'd like to discuss the importance of pharmacists as members of the transgender patients' healthcare team, how drug therapy can improve the quality of life for our transgender patients, and best practices for educating all of our future healthcare professionals. Our guests today are Dr. Cheyenne Newsom and Jessica Conklin. Dr. Newsom is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacotherapy at Washington State University College of Pharmacy. And Dr. Conklin was most recently assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice and Administration Services at the University of New Mexico College of Pharmacy. Both are passionate about the care of transgender and gender diverse patient populations and have published regarding this topic. So we're truly honored to be able to speak with them today. Cheyenne, Jessica, welcome to Pharmacy Forward. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to get to share this important information with you and your listeners. So I have to admit that I wasn't aware of any pharmacists who are experts on transgender care until we started doing some research on this topic. I know that both of you have worked extensively with gender diverse patients, have given lectures at national meetings, and written articles on this topic. But I'm sure neither of you have taken a course in transgender care during your pharmacy education. So I'm curious how you first got involved in providing care to this population. You're right. There was no course on caring for transgender patients in my pharmacy experience. So my involvement in the care of gender diverse patients really began with being in the right place at the right time and seizing an opportunity to expand my knowledge while also expanding the role of pharmacist in New Mexico. Basically, or the story is that my clinic was in discussion about expanding services to include transgender patients, and they were talking about how they wanted this clinic to run. And as a eager pharmacist, I quickly responded that a pharmacist needed to be a part of the team and needed to be a part of this new experience. So with that, I needed to make sure that I was the most educated. I had to train myself. I attended several conferences and teamed up with people who were experienced in this topic, a psychiatrist as well as an endocrinologist. Since then, I've been caring for transgender patients in both an interprofessional and an independent role, which includes affirming hormone education, initiation, titration, lab monitoring, risk harm reduction services, 
I really wanted to educate my peers on this topic. And so the majority of my time in clinic is also spent with students and residents. And that's where Cheyenne comes in. So I trained in the transgender clinic with Jessica as a PGY2 amatory care resident at University of New Mexico. So prior to working in this clinic with Jessica, I had never knowingly cared for a patient who was transgender or received any education in my pharmacy program. So I was really lucky to be in a setting with Jessica and the other interprofessional experts on this topic. And while working with the transgender patients, I found it to be so rewarding and so impactful to be able to provide this care to them. So when I moved up to Washington State University to my current position as faculty, I was able to incorporate some transgender patient care into our curriculum. It's clear that you guys have both done a great job of promoting the role of pharmacists on your healthcare teams. Can you guys speak a little bit more to this and why it's important for pharmacists to be aware of the differing needs these patients may have, as well as some terminology that we should be familiar with? So first, we used to think of sex and gender as interchangeable, and now we really think of them as two unique words with different definitions. So sex is based on biological characteristics and usually is looked at the genitalia at birth and determine the sex at birth, whether it presents as male or female. Whereas gender is more of a social construct and relies more on one's internal sense of themselves and how they fit into society and cultural norms. So a transgender woman is someone whose sex assigned at birth was male, but their gender identity is feminine. So that would be a definition for a transgender woman. So cisgender is a term for people whose sex assigned at birth matches their gender identity. In previous episodes in this series, affirming terminology has been discussed. But as with this community, the terminology is constantly evolving. When Cheyenne and myself first wrote our paper about a pharmacist's role in transgender care, we were using the term cross-sex hormone therapy. And by the time our proofs came back, this no longer was the most up-to-date language. So we can understand the struggle of trying to keep up with how fast both the language as well as the data So when we're talking about hormone therapy, to the best of our knowledge, gender-affirming hormone therapy is the most current term for the treatment of transgender individuals. So it's important to always use appropriate language when talking to any individual, as you may not know a patient's gender identity. One of my patients states that they have never discussed their gender identity with their physician, let alone with their pharmacist. So I have found that using pronouns in my everyday language and also using it in introductions can really help patients feel more comfortable. So I often ask my patients what name they go by after I bring them back into my clinic room, even now as I work mainly in a diabetes clinic. I'll ask patients an open-ended, what name do you go by? And this lets them tell me their preferred name, whether they go by Jim instead of James, or they go by a name that would indicate a different gender identity than their sex at birth. So when I'm interacting with a patient or my introduction with a patient, a lot of times I'll say, my name is Dr. Conklin or Jessica. I'm your pharmacist on your team. I use female pronouns, she, her, hers, and I also um, am very passionate about teaching, so you may encounter a learner during your clinic visit. Please make sure to always tell me if this is okay. And by adding a pronoun into kind of a little bit about me and what my purpose in clinic is can really help patients feel more comfortable if they 
are in the gender diverse community, or if they are not in the gender diverse community by giving them a little bit extra, they just kind of ignore that or don't really know what it means. So you're not isolating anyone. So I think that can be really helpful. Common pronouns that we may use include what I mentioned, the feminine pronoun she, her, hers. Also our masculine pronouns, he, him, his, and our gender neutral pronouns, which are they, them, theirs, and z, theirs, theirs. I think most of our audience are probably familiar with hormone replacement, both in women experiencing menopause or perhaps in older men who have low testosterone. But can you give us a little bit of a summary about the most common medications used for gender affirmation? The most common medications that are used for gender affirmation are hormones. And the goals of these medications are to induce physical changes that are more congruent with an individual's gender identity. We use the same hormones in this population as we would use in our hypogonadal men or our menopausal women. However, instead of replacing hormones, we're adding exogenous hormones, which will decrease our endogenous production. You can think of this as a teeter-totter. If estrogen is high or on the high end of the teeter-totter, like in most women or people who were born producing endogenous estrogen, our testosterone is low. So in our transmasculine individuals, if we supplement with testosterone, it's going to naturally add weight, which would then push the estrogen down and increase the testosterone and reversing the balance of that teeter-totter. This is also the same or similar concept for individuals who were designated the sex male at birth and what we are doing to their estrogen. Aside from terminology, another point I really like to highlight, especially for pharmacists, is how effective these medications are. Hormone therapy has been shown to improve quality of life and resolve gender dysphoria in over 80% of patients taking them. So that's amazingly effective. I really think of these medications as wonder drugs when you compare 80% efficacy to what we have for most of our other medications that get FDA approval. Yeah, I think those are important things for pharmacists to know. And going along with that, what are testosterone preparations that could be used? The most common testosterone preparation used in our uh, transmasculine individuals is going to be an injectable. The injectable is formulated in an oil, which is the testosterone cipionate, the enanthate, But the Scipionate is the most common, and the Scipionate, how it differs from the enanthate, is that it is suspended in cottonseed oil rather than the sesame seed oil. This may be important for people who have allergies. The injectable testosterone, when you actually look at the vial of testosterone Scipionate, it says for IM or intramuscular injection only. However, there's emerging data that is supporting the use of testosterone being injected subcutaneously, which is really exciting. If you're having to give yourself a weekly injection into the muscle, it can be quite daunting and adherence can be an issue and as well as pain. So being able to do a subcutaneous injection makes it a lot better for a lot of our individuals. And pharmacokinetically, we don't have as many peaks or troughs from patient reports. Patients will say that they have less of a wearing off effect and less of a peak or a rush that they feel when they're giving their testosterone if they're giving it subcutaneous rather than intramuscular. The other ones that are less commonly used is the transdermal preparation, including the patch, the gel, or compounded creams. These are used for individuals that may have a preference not to use injectable, have insurances that will pay for these, as well as somebody who may be on the gender spectrum and not necessarily our binary 
masculine individual so that they can kind of control their transition a little bit more or control the effects of the testosterone a little bit more. The other one, which I'm really excited about, is the subcutaneous implant. There are clinics throughout the country that do the subcutaneous implant for our transmasculine individuals. Giving yourself an injection every week for the rest of your life can be a little bit daunting. There's a lot of medication administration fatigue that goes with testosterone over long term. And also, you can see the mental health effects of somebody whose testosterone levels in general are kind of all over the place because of poor adherence. So the sub implant would be implanted into subcutaneous tissue, often in the buttocks for three to six months. And I really think that it has a niche as well for potentially um, our active duty military that may deploy where they couldn't be giving themselves a weekly injection. So some exciting things I think to come with the implant. Is there anything else that patients or pharmacists should know before recommending or dispensing testosterone? Yes, and I think this is one thing that the pharmacist role can be expanded, and that's really knowing the risk and benefits and even the alternatives to testosterone therapy. Part of my clinic experience was being able to sit down with every patient so we could talk about the risk, benefits, and alternatives of testosterone or feminizing hormone therapy. But since I'm focusing on testosterone, I just want to give you a quick little overview of some of the irreversible effects and some of the effects that should just be discussed in general practice. So starting with our irreversible effects of testosterone, there are three. The first one is going to be body hair and facial growth. And it's important to educate patients that they don't get to pick where this body hair or facial growth occurs. The majority of the patients that I saw, a lot of, I guess, the younger patients I saw would say, I'm really excited to have a beard and chest hair. And they didn't think about some of the the hair could really be anywhere as far as a male hair growth. So really kind of talking about expectations too is important. Also deepened voice. So testosterone will actually change the anatomy of the vocal cords. So it's really important to know that once this happens, it is an irreversible effect and whether or not a patient is wanting this to occur. And lastly, the third irreversible effect that's really important to go over is the clitoral enlargement, really changing some of the anatomy. um, And the clitoral enlargement is variable in every individual, so we can't necessarily predict how much testosterone will actually affect this. Some of the other effects that we should be discussing are also increased risk of acne, effects on fertility. Testosterone will cause a transmasculine individual to lose their period or loss of menses. However, there is still case reports of people getting pregnant without menses um, and on testosterone. So thinking about counseling on birth control options, if it is necessary in this patient population, as well as um, increased muscle mass strength. And the one that I worked a lot with was increase in appetite. Increase in appetite was important to discuss. My patients would talk about how they were ravenous when they were started on testosterone and all they wanted to do was eat. So really paying attention to other comorbid conditions as far as diabetes or prediabetes and how we can kind of help uh, mitigate some of those effects of testosterone. Oh, wow. That is all very insightful and important information that we should be able to recall and be able to inform our patients of. Going along with that, what if a patient wants to be more feminine as opposed to more masculine? So the feminization is a little bit more involved. We usually use two medications for feminizing, whereas for masculinizing, we just use testosterone. For feminization, we use estrogen, as would be expected, but we also give a medication that helps suppress the testosterone. When you talk about suppressing testosterone, what kind of medications are those? 
Yeah, spironolactone is the most commonly used testosterone-suppressing medication or anti-androgen. And the reason spironolactone is used often is because it's readily accessible. We use it for other conditions, and it's also inexpensive and able to just be taken orally. The other class of medications that can be used to suppress testosterone are gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists. And these are effective, but they're injectable and they're very expensive, like thousands of dollars a month. So that's why usually we go with spironolactone. And the doses of spironolactone to suppress androgen, we aim for doses of 200 to 400 milligrams a day. Oh, wow. I don't think I've ever used that quite high of a dose of spironolactone. Do patients usually tolerate those doses? Yeah, usually we make sure to monitor their potassium and their renal function when initiating and titrating it, but most patients are able to tolerate those higher doses. Okay, so in addition to spironolactone, are there other estrogen therapies that we could use? So like testosterone, there's different formulations of estrogen. The recommended formulation of estrogen is 17 beta estradiol, and that's what should be used for feminization. The other formulations have had problems. Problem with ethanyl estradiol is an increased risk of clots, but ethanyl estradiol does a really good job at cycle regulation. And Premarin is the other estrogen or conjugated estrogens that can be used, but they're really difficult to monitor the blood levels of because there's so many different types of estrogen in them. So we use 17-beta estradiol because it has a lower risk of side effects and can be monitored pretty easily. But there are sublingual tablets, patches, injections, and compounded creams of 17-beta estradiol. So you, you brought up a lot of different formulations. Is there anything that would make one formulation better than, than another for a patient? Yeah, so not many patients opt for the injectable. It sometimes can be hard to acquire it because it's not commonly used for other indications. The sublingual tablets are by far the most common one that are used. And that's nice because the patients can take the pill um, either dissolving it sublingually or they can swallow it and it will be absorbed through the GI tract. The benefit of the sublingual administration is that it bypasses first-pass metabolism through the liver, which is thought to stimulate the production of clotting factors. So typically, whenever we start any patient on estrogen therapy, we often think about the increased risk for clots. So is this a big concern for these patients that are on estrogen? So VTE is a concern I hear often from providers and pharmacists. The doses of estrogen used for feminization are higher than what's used for postmenopausal hormone replacement. So the doses of oral estrogen are usually between 1 and 6 milligrams per day. However, there was a study conducted of patients who were transgender on estrogen, and they found that there wasn't any increased risk um, for those women. And the women included, the transgender women included in that study, they did have risk factors for DBT. About a fifth of them were using tobacco, many of them were overweight, and a significant percent had HIV. So even with those other risk factors on board, they didn't see an increased incidence of VTE. So what are the possible side effects from the feminization therapy? Adverse effects of estradiol for transgender women are similar to that for cisgender women. So those include like migraines, weight gain, elevated liver enzymes, hypertriglyceridemia. 
Some that are specific to therapy for feminization are decreased libido and reduced penile function as the testosterone is also being suppressed when you give the estrogen and spironolactone. Alongside that, I'm curious about other medications. I know we've talked extensively about testosterone and estrogen, but what are other medications involved in gender affirmation? Other therapies include progesterone in our transfeminine individuals. There is some evidence that progesterone improves breast architecture. So some patients may ask about using progesterone and estrogen. Rogaine or 5-alpha reductase inhibitors are used for androgenic pattern hair loss. I want to tell a quick story. I was in clinic with a patient who came in. It was a transmasculine individual who had normal feminine hormone levels. Um, however, they had facial hair. So immediately with having normal labs and facial hair, I thought there was some sort of endocrinopathy going on or something else that would cause this patient to have male pattern kind of facial hair, even though they had never been on testosterone before. And so what had happened is the patient started putting Rogaine on their face. So really kind of investigating what could medications be used for, um, how can we use medications outside of the box, outside of the norm, because if we're not thinking of it, our patients are definitely thinking of how they can treat themselves and help patients that are experiencing some gender dysphoria. And then also, in some of our transmasculine individuals, having a menses can be um, quite disturbing or increase their dysphoria. So stopping menses as soon as possible is often helpful for some of these patients. So using things like Depo-Provera or the Mirena to reduce or eliminate menses. So Cheyenne and Jessica, one of the pharmacy organizations has recently produced a continuing education on transgender healthcare and our role as pharmacists. So as a current pharmacy resident, I want to make sure that I am as prepared as possible in all of my future practice. So along with that, what are some other resources that I could potentially use as a new pharmacist to really be able to provide the best care I can for my transgender patients? My go-to references or resources are UCSF, so University of California, San Francisco. They have an entire online forum for healthcare providers or primary care providers on the use of hormones, um, what, how to risk stratify patients for different disease states, appropriate terminology. It is a wonderful resource for any provider, whether they're new to treating gender diverse individuals or whether they've been doing it for a long time. Also, the WPATH, um, the World Professional Association of Transgender Care, is definitely a resource that we could use for diagnostic information. The one thing I always like to disclose about the WPATH is it can cause a lot of frustration for pharmacists because it does not include dosing of medications. It talks about risk and benefits of medications, but not dosing. So if you're looking for that, I would specifically look at the Endocrine Society guidelines. And those are really good resources. Another really practical resource is Fenway Health out of Boston. And Fenway Health, they host a conference every year, which Jessica and I have been to, which was really good. And they also have an online resource center, kind of similar to UCSF. So Fenway is another one that has really great, practical, easy to read, easy to understand guidelines. I also use the National Transgender Center for Equality. It has great background information, and they have a FAQs 
page about frequently asked questions that has really good basics about what it means to be transgender and kind of some different things that transgender people face. So I always have my students read that to kind of understand more of the background before we get into the medications. These sound like all great resources and a great starting point. And I really appreciate all of the the things you all mentioned as far as opportunities for us to really improve in our interactions with patients. So we're able to do that in more competent ways. Um, So like you mentioned, as far as incorporating proper pronouns into our conversations and just knowing how to approach conversations with our patients. And just the bottom line is that we really hope we can optimize care for our patients, especially being armed with all this really great information and insight. Jessica and Cheyenne, I want to thank you all for joining us today on Pharmacy Forward Podcast and, of course, sharing your your considerable experience and knowledge that you guys have. Thank you so much, Cheyenne and Jessica. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. If you like this podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcast app and tell all of your pharmacy friends and colleagues. Be sure to rate us and send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like to share about someone who's transferring knowledge into action, send us an email. Pharmacy Forward is produced by the Division of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. For more information about our professional development programs, visit pharmacycpd.org. That's pharmacycpd.org. This episode was conceived and developed by Elizabeth Yett, Markeisha Cook, Bianca Lascano, Elizabeth Hearn, Ha Fan, Megan Brown, Lori Fleming, Josh Fleming, and Stuart Haynes. Thank you.